Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following session of Dharma Dialogues was recorded in 2003 in either Santa Barbara or Los Angeles. And it's from our archives, which were originally produced on previous media and have now been remastered for podcasts. This one is called Seeing What is Deeper. I also want to let you know that we're having live sessions of Dharma Dialogues on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria two Sundays a month, beginning in February 2023. That schedule is on our website, katherineingram.com. I was recently on a book tour, and um, I was doing a bunch of interviews on radio, and some of the shows had call-ins. So a woman called in, and said the following. She said, my brother has cancer and is in a lot of pain. Um, It's terminal. And he wants to choose his own exit. He wants to, he wants to get out of this and not wait for the bitter end. And he's in a lot of fear about what lies ahead for him if he doesn't commit suicide. And she says to me, I don't know how to advise him. I don't know what to say. I don't know if I should tell him he should do it, if I should help him. I don't know what to do. So I said, well, is he asking you? And she said, no, but he's talking about it. He's talking to me all the time about it. And I said, this is not a subject I would advise him on at all. This is not something I would give advice about. I would recommend very specifically not giving advice in this case. But I added, there is something you can do for your brother. You can be fully and totally present for your brother. Be there with him as he struggles with this decision, as he struggles with the fear, the pain, all of it. Don't turn away. Don't look away. At the same time, See him as whole. See what he is now in his truest beingness and see what he was as you remembered him. See all of that when you look at your brother. Offer him that. Isn't that really what we want? That even when we're in our, we're in our crazy phase, we're in our desperate phase, we're in our pain whether it's physical or emotional. Really, somehow, we want to be recognized. We want to be seen in what is deeper than all of that, what is more fundamental, what is truer. We want people to acknowledge the pain, but we don't want to just be seen as a bundle of pain. We don't want to see ourselves that way. So I said, you know, if you can really do this with your brother, if you can really be with him in this kind of presence, seeing him as whole, he might have glimmers of himself as as whole as well. And it may not do much to lessen his physical pain, but it will go a long way toward lessening the fear the reactivity, 
the panic. It allows a little bit of space around what may be just a kind of collapsed reality of physical pain and fear. The best way, of course, to be able to offer that is to experience it in oneself, to experience your own wholeness, despite all your madness, despite everything, to experience your own pure beingness, your own sense of presence, your fundamental nature. The more you sit in the center of that, the more you're able to see that in whoever you're with and whatever you're with. This can kind of be an entrainment that you get used to. And that is an incredible offering to anyone you're with. See them beyond the story, their suffering, their failures, or their success. See what's deeper. Offer that. Were you just giving a, um, a description of sort of a, a way of seeing? It's to sit in the center of your being and know yourself in that fundamental essence that is deeper than your story. And then as you sit in that center of beingness, more and more that's what you see when you look out, when you see others. You see them beyond their story as well. You're always looking at this essence that was blazed, this divine essence that is sparking every living thing. And you realize how incredibly amazing it is and the intelligence that's informing it. And you start to feel that in yourself, and you start to see that wherever you look. And it brings with it a kind of love that is different than most of the ways we think about love. It brings with it a kind of love that is is born of deep and profound appreciation, and not trying trying to have and link up and hook up and, you know, me and you and all of that. It's not a subject and object love. You start to feel it all as subject. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could talk about how to sustain sort of the, the glimpses and the tastes that are dotted lines towards a solid line, that solid, continuous connection with awareness. And if you could talk about that. Which well, it... It goes on its own way. There's nothing really you can do necessarily to make it go a lot faster, except enjoy it, love it when you notice it. And what that does is it it conditions the awareness to want more of that. It's like a a pleasure response. It gives the mind, even the brain, a little pleasure hit to be in that kind of openness, spaciousness, at easeness. And as you notice it and 
let the awareness actually grok that that's what's happening. It gives a certain entrainment, again, to the awareness to come back. But don't worry about the so-called slipping off. And I wouldn't necessarily set it up in my awareness or mind that you're waiting for this steady state, that you're even hoping for that. Just that it's, that it's more and more the habit is enough. That's enough. That will sustain you just fine. I think it's mostly a myth that there is such a steady state. I mean, maybe for some few rare, rare individuals, possibly. But mostly a myth, I would say. Um, I've come to the point where I realize that I want other people to give me what I need. And I also realize that they can't. That's good. You realize that second part. <laughs> how, how do you get that need within yourself filled? How do you do it, or do you just let it happen, and if it doesn't happen, you go into depression? I mean, because I mean, you talked about your depression, too, so this is actually two questions I'm asking. How, how was that? How did you get through that depression? Because that's what happens. Well, what happened in my case, and, and, and see, I'm hesitant to ever set up a situation where you're looking to repeat a, somebody else's process, you know. So just beware that you don't have to go this route at all. But what happened in my case was after many, many years of a Dharma, Dharma life in Buddhist practice, it fell away. And it just fell away on its own, not through anything, not through any will of mine, because that was my whole world. I certainly didn't want it to happen that way, but it did. And there was this two-year gap of just feeling raw and lost and like I didn't belong in this world. None of it made any sense to me. So what that can create is an openness Right? It can, you can either go into deep, even deeper despair and feel very, very lost and go into madness, as I was saying. Or you can go into, you can be open to a fresh perspective. And in my case, I was very lucky to have met Punjaji at exactly that time, where I had nothing going, nothing left. It was kind of the end of my rope. And I met him, and within a, a shockingly short amount of time, being in his presence, everything was fine. More than fine. Everything was extraordinarily beautiful and connected. But again, I don't want to set it up in that you have to go meet some person that can, you know, remind you of that. Remind, be reminded of it now. Because all that happened in the meeting of Punjaji was the recognition that nothing out there was really going to do it, and no more practice was really going to do it. That's all that happened. This is more of a subtraction than any kind of addition. 
You realize, okay, not that, not that, not that, not that. Well, then what's left? What's left is gratitude, the sense of aliveness, the gratitude for being at all. I guess I'm still looking for something. The gratitude is is the practice, then. And the gratitude of being alive is the practice? It's not necessarily a practice in time. It's, it's a momentary recognition. You know, I often speak about just relaxing. <laughs> I see you even relaxed as I said the word. You know, just relaxing into the center of yourself. Just go right there and just be at ease. Just relax. Ah, no doing, no presenting, no having to maintain and impress and all of it. Just, just go right into the deep center of your own core of being and be at ease there. And there you discover a sweetness. The gratitude arises automatically. It arises because here you are experiencing beautiful life. Thank you. And you're showing up for it. You're actually feeling beautiful life. You're feeling... You're feeling a sense of wonder. So then, um, maybe this is the same question, but I'm not particularly Buddhist, but I practice a Buddhist meditation Mm -hmm. because I appreciate the training of Mm -hmm. into stillness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I once heard this sort of joke that was like a little too close to home that said a Buddhist is either (laughs) meditating or thinking they should be (laughs) meditating. I get it. <laughs> I may not be Buddhist, but I've taken that on. Uh-huh. And, um, so there is this sense that um, when I'm either doing these things in this world and I've forgotten, yeah, or I'm efforting into that into stillness, yeah. And then there are moments of incredible sweetness and those things that you talk about. I recognized. But there's always the sense that there should be more. And I, and even when you just mentioned that, just resting into the center of your being. So then my mind goes, okay, well, just remember to do this one. You know, like, so now I have a new practice that I've, I'm already ex- exhausted, exhausted by. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm already having to remember. And then a little while ago, you were saying just about just, stringing moments together just Mm -hmm. so and I definitely do I mean there is something there is the unequivocally the sweetest part of my day no matter what event happens is this place yes is this like phone call home is this yes is this place of love yeah and yet I notice the tendency to resist yeah ceasing doing and thinking Mm -hmm. is that just i mean is that just what is is that just at a certain point well let me just say jump in here there is a possibility of being at home on you know your phone call home with doing and thinking going on 
But what happens is the awareness starts to increase. I was speaking about it a couple of nights ago. There's a, a growing sort of expanse of silence in one's experience of oneself. And so it's as though silence is filling up a vessel. And doing and thinking is occurring. It's part of what's going on, but it's, it's no longer the preponderance of what's going on. It's just part of what's going on. And the attention is, is really at home in this relaxed core, in this relaxed center, in itself, steeping in itself. And that just becomes a habit. And like I said, all it takes is to, is to just enjoy that when it happens. Don't worry. Don't make it any kind of project. Just when it happens, really notice it. And it sounds like you do notice it. So just know that that is going to start calling. You know, it's like a, a, it's a home calling. And it just starts to shift, you know. Maybe it used to be you spend most of your time in busyness, craziness, story, past, future, work, and drama, and with little, little flashes of, of ah, at ease. What happens is it starts to shift, and mostly you're at ease. Mostly you're in this, you're, you're filled with a kind of quiet. Even though thoughts are going through, they may continue to go through. The conditioning of your mind is, is kind of none of your business. It's done. So how many thoughts are going through, how frequently they go through, is not really something you, you can do much about. What you can have affect them, though, is your interest in the thoughts. As the interest in certain kinds of thoughts lessens and is more interested in quiet, then they just come and they kind of die on the vine. You know, they just... <laughs> they just... <laughs> One of my girlfriends t- told this story of her father, who was in his 80s, and he, was, he had Alzheimer's. And now and again, he would come through with a kind of clear perception. And one day he said to her, he was trying to remember something, and he just couldn't remember it, he couldn't get it. And he said to her, just apropos of nothing, he said, sometimes they don't make it here. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone understood. It's like the thought, it's there, it's coming, but it doesn't quite quite get here, you know. And so, (laughs) in a similar way, they kind of come and kind of go before you even know it. (laughs) Yeah. So, you realize that you don't have to pay attention to every single one of your thoughts. I mean, that alone, if, if you hear nothing else tonight, is a big relief. So you, re- you start to realize there's just this stream going by completely on its own conditioned way. And the awareness doesn't have to follow it at all. So what I was saying is, let's say it this way. Let's say you're conditioned mind is just doing its thing. The patterning of thought may stay very similar. The reactions, the judgments, the story, the whole thing may stay shockingly similar (laughs) to what it's been in terms of content and types of content. But it's as though it keeps becoming less in intensity, like the volume is being turned down, 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 way down. 
So now it's just whispers, and you're not even paying that much attention to it. I mean, when I was doing Buddhist practice, we had a model that if you, if you were doing it long enough and well enough and consistently enough, you would purify the content of the mind. You would cease to have hatred arise. You'd cease to have jealousy arise. You'd cease to have judgment. That was supposedly the last to go. You know, well, the more that I looked at my mind, I thought, I'm getting worse. <laughs> you know, it's, it was clear that I was starting to see the subtleties of the nature of reactivity of mind. What happens now is that I don't care what arises. I don't take ownership of it. So I, I have no plan to try to purify the contents of my mind. That is one big project I'm no longer doing. <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> because uh, a friend of mine who is more devotedly Buddhist, you know, we've done a lot of 10-day retreats and a lot of time sitting and you know we have this pattern where we come back and there's a few days in the steeped and then right. the roar of life comes, comes back. and then we think we have to catch up with bills and things and then within three more days and our, her last conversation to me was well I just think I'm just going to go and live there for a while I'm just going to go and serve a course sit a course and then I'm going to do a 20 day and then I'm and then I'm thinking, and we're both thinking that the logic of our mind says, well, if a little of this is going to get us there, and the only thing we want is to get there, we should just, just better go there till we get there. <laughs> but, you know, because otherwise this is not working, this coming out and going back. But it sounds like... I mean, I have friends who went off to Burma, became monks, were there for years and years, and came out and had a gigantic swing of the pendulum into real acting out in the world. I mean, real. It was as though like a lid was taken off. And they acting out? Acting out in terms of getting really in trouble after being <laughs> many years as living as a monk or a nun. Just really getting into trouble, getting, becoming alcoholic, having all kinds of... I mean, it was as though they had regressed when they got out. So it's not necessarily the case that more sitting and more practice and more, you know, it's like you put the, you put the tape player on pause. <laughs> and then you're back and it's loud again, you know. So the, I'm, what I'm speaking about is a living meditation. It's a way of life. Now, I recommend in our case doing a retreat now and again just for the, for the deep steeping of it and the, and the relaxation of it. Because we're in busy life, and it's just healthy to do now and again, to just unplug, really unplug everything, you know, and unplug the need to think and function in that way. It's very, very helpful for people. So I do recommend it. We don't practice at our retreats. We just totally relax like this. But in general, as a way of life, it's a living meditation. It's, it's a... It's something you are living and breathing, and you then you realize you can be fully functioning. You got home, you pay the bills, you you have the difficult conversation with whoever it is, you, all of it. You you take care of the business. At the same time, there's this home base. 
you're sitting, as I like to say, on your mountain seat of freedom all the while. You know, the world is passing by and doing it whatever it does, and you're engaged with it as you need to be, but you're not thrown by it. You always know where to return. And that just becomes more and more how you experience yourself. And then you really don't care what's going through the mind. You just let the mind do whatever it wants to do. No longer a project, no longer a, you know, you're no longer wrestling with it. And you're no longer burdened with the particular conditioning you got. You're no longer burdened by some sort of judgment about that. Some people were very lucky. You know, they had lovely, wonderful childhoods, and they were genetically gifted and all kinds of things. <laughs> you know, and they were in circumstances that have been mostly nice and so on. And, and perhaps for those people, wherever they are, <laughs> the content is more pleasant. But for many, many people, the conditioning was difficult. Many hurts, many losses, abuse, unfriendliness, mean-spiritedness, perhaps parents who were crazy. So that is going to have an effect. It's going to have conditioned thought, conditioned reactions. But this does not impede your freedom. And it becomes a, a really profound acceptance of yourself, just as you are. What will happen in the arising of crazy, depraved, small thoughts, instead of the spiritual judgment that might have been placed on those kinds of thoughts, what comes instead is compassion for you having to experience those kinds of thoughts yet again. So there's more and more gentleness toward yourself for you as you are. And when that increases, when that, when that becomes strong, you feel it for other people as well. You see that they can't help their program either. And to the degree they're caught in their program, they're suffering. I can feel what you're saying is true. Mm -hmm. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Got a question about knowing what the right action to take is, or if any action is required. So, sort of listening to one's heart, and does the heart ever lie? I mean, is it necessarily a reliable organ? <laughs> on which to make decisions. <laughs> Not in Woody Allen's case. <laughs> I mean, do you ever have something that you just feel so compelled to act on? I mean, that you would act on. I'm really trying to get at what leads you to do something like write a book or something, you know, which is going to be some very impactful decision in the course of your life. How do you get motivated in that? What has happened for, for me 
over the course of time I've noticed is that there's this constant tracking that is saying, what is the greater good? What is the greater good here? Now, that doesn't exclude my own needs from that picture. They're included as part of the consideration. So in other words, some people who were very self-sacrificing, if they asked that question, what is the greater good, they might unconsciously be saying, for everybody else, not including me. But on balance, when I look at a situation, I'll say, well, what is the greater good for everyone included? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like I do that. So let's go a bit beyond that. All right. That you do that is wonderful. Right. You know, I mean, when I made the Woody Allen joke, yeah, if for those of you who don't know the reference, he, he said apropos of getting into a relationship with someone who was essentially like a stepdaughter, he said, the heart wants what it wants. So when I said that, I, you know, it wasn't just really a joke. There are situations where obviously that is not necessarily considering the greater good. Right. right? So, no matter what his own personal, yes. physical, or whatever kind of desire he had. No, actually, that's, I'm glad you clarified that because it kind of helps me a bit. So that the heart can lie. In a way, well, like being, it can ask for something that's not necessarily for the greater uh, good. For the greater good. Yes. It, that can be more, you could say it more that desire can masquerade in a fancy dress. But really, it gets down to like a, a four year old level. I want that. Right. <laughs> I want that. I want it now. And I can have it. Right. And no one will stop me. Right. But when it comes to people, that's not necessarily true, is it? Because that... Well, some that people... To, to, yeah, but, I mean, some people are in positions where they can um, have their, you know, basically yeah, have their that. desires, and their desires can hurt a lot of people. Right. They, and, they true. Yeah. and nothing happens to them when they enact them. Right. But... As you become more sensitive, as you become more sensitive as a being, you start to see how your actions, why I say to myself, what is the greater good? is not even out of any great altruistic. Right, you just don't want to suffer, right? Exactly, I yeah, don't want to suffer. <laughs> That's exactly why. I'm too sensitive. If I notice something, yeah. you know, if I notice my behavior has somehow hurt somebody, even if it wasn't intended in any way, there is a great sensitivity to that situation. It takes up a lot more awareness than I want to be having. Right. So it's really that. Well, I'm, I think I'm thinking of two events in my life right now. Um, one was I, we have a meditation group at my house, and I just found myself being irritable mm -hmm. after a while. With it. I wasn't getting much out of it, and I was kind of, in retrospect, doing it for loyalty's sake. But, yes. And one day I I just said, okay, I'm giving this up. <laughs> and since then I saw that the irritability is actually how in this body-mind my broken heart manifests. I have a tendency to not want to feel some things, and the broken heart 
I can feel it by seeing irritability. And then I know that underneath that, there's something broken, you know, yes. and not uh-huh. happy. So in a way, the heart was trying to communicate something. Right, and it came out as irritability. It came out as irritability. The next thing that's um, troubling me right now is um, I found myself having very strong feelings for another human being, and it's mutual, but it's not not clean by any means. You know, there's a family involved and a relationship. Not married, but as a relationship and everything there, and it's very strong. And I've noticed in my life that there are certain people who I feel very close to. And some of those are not relationship things by any means, just good friends, you know, people you meet the first time and it felt like you've known them forever and it's just a comfort. And and that's associated with this sort of heart feeling, like there's a sense of coming home there. Mm -hmm. And I feel that in this relationship, but I'm very... It's very strong. It's brought up a lot of stuff, a lot of past conditioning, I think. There's a lot of the old ways of going about doing that sort of thing because I haven't really done that for years. So it's something I really haven't looked at in my life. And so the old conditioning comes up to be looked at, and it makes me a little hesitant. And I, I really try to stay on doing what's right. But there's this strong compulsion there, and I don't know what that means, if it really means to act or if it's just a strong feeling but not necessarily real. That's really where I'm coming from. Well, try as best as you can to sit in stillness until everything is very, very clear to you. Try that Knowing that for the last week. <laughs> try some more. Yeah, I'll try some more. <laughs> there may come a moment when it is totally clear, one way or the other. There may come a moment when it's when you know either this this has to be played out, or you know that you can actually let this go right yeah, I think that's good advice I'll just let it carry on for a while and see yeah. what happens yeah. what really stay choices. in the meantime in a place of quiet that knows that however it goes your fundamental essence is just fine Yes. If you get into a story about how much more enhanced you're going to be if you can have this person yes. And you may be dead wrong about that, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> it's been known to happen. But <laughs> I, I thought about that. I, I, I'm sure. I last time it happened, and, uh, and yes. it lost a lot of power actually. Seeing that, yes. seeing that, oh, this could, this doesn't necessarily mean what I'm I think it means. Right? Exactly. Yes. It's off in the way. I mean, right. you know. I have a I have a very cool relationship to desire because I really see how and I mean in any domain whatever it is you yeah. know I really see the complication that often comes with following practically any desire yeah yeah it's true I mean it's it's been quite a ride last week yeah.
So, but anyway, what I was going to say is that if you really stay in the knowing that however it plays out, you're pretty much the same, the same in your essence. So with or without. Yeah, I feel, feel that quite strongly. And at the same time, I have a broken heart. And I'm learning to be okay with that. I mean, that for me is, you know, learning to just actually be with it instead of going into thought about <laughs> it or distracting myself. So I'm trying to, and it, it's okay, but it's a, I've had more joyous times in life too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more on essence and beings. Well, it's really a direct experience, you know. The words are not even good approximations, but we have nothing else to speak with. But it's really to get you to, well, let's do an experiment. You remember being quite far back, I would say. Is that true? You remember being. Well, when, do you remember being four? Four years old. But really when you think about it or when you remember it, it's not the four-year-old part that you remember. What you remember is being. Yes? Mm-hmm. And at ten, at ten you remember being. Now, the content, the story, lots of aspects have changed in terms of what your particular focus was. In fact, maybe you don't even remember when you were four what you were thinking about, what your attention was actually playing with at the time. But you remember very well this primordial sense of just simply being. And at 21, now the memory starts to get a little bit more clear about the content, the story, and so on. But perhaps in many ways, what you primarily recall is just the sheer sense of existence. And you can go through the ages like that into now, where you can sense that that's really the fundamental, that's what's fundamentally happening, is there's this presence, there's this existing, there's this deep bottom line, aliveness. Now we add on all kinds of things with mental construct, like clothing, you know, it's almost like clothing. We clothe ourselves in concepts. I am this, I am that, here's my job now, look at me like this, and so on. Identities, which I spoke about the other night. We take on various identities to have a sense, some sort of coherent sense of me. But actually, underneath all that, you don't really need a sense of me, per se. You, you just have this pure sense of being. And the more you can be that, the more you can know yourself as that, the more relaxed you are, the more connected you are. It's extraordinarily pleasant. You don't then need a sense of belonging. You belong. <laughs> You're in. 
You don't need to try to feel connected. You're connected. When you're just as that. When you take on the cloaks, I am this and I am that, my identity, then you're working to try to get the, the identity connected. The identity now has to connect with the other identities. And that's hard. <laughs> but when you go right into the being, then beings, being is connected everywhere. It's just radiating out everywhere. So you stay with the fundamental. You recognize it. You stay with it. You relax into it. That becomes home base. Ah, oh, safe. You stay as you really and truly are. And then the motions of mind trying to take on identities like these various cloaks. Even though there may be some habit of doing that, it's no longer your main your main focus in life, presenting your identity. Instead, you're resting in beingness. There's a beautiful quote from a Buddhist teacher. (laughs) He says, Become as a still forest pond, and then all kinds of strange and wonderful creatures will come to drink of you. So what happens is you you stay in your still essence, in your still forest pond. And strangely, instead of you having to go out and attract through your identity, people want to come and drink of a still forest pond. They want to drink of beingness. Because they want to be reminded of their own. This has been In the Deep. You can find our podcast on many of the major podcast platforms, as well as on our website, katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session and see the schedule of upcoming events. We rely on donations for the production of these podcasts, and we're grateful for your support by donation, which in the U.S. is tax deductible. We're also grateful for your reviews or for simply sharing these podcasts with your friends. Till next time.